Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women's Ministry Teaching Team, and I am so very glad to be here with you on this, uh, what is for some, a spring break morning. For others, the rest of us, it's just a normal Thursday, isn't it? I saw a, a great reason this week to be happy that I'm not on a spring break trip. I was standing in line at the grocery store and there was a whole row of tabloids and the front of them were pictures of unsuspecting celebrities in their bathing suits on spring break you know and of course they were all uh, not very flattering poses you know it was always the cellulite from the side or the little tummy row when you're kind of sitting up and I thought oh good I'm not going to be in my bathing suit this week so I don't have to worry about anyone taking an unsuspecting picture of me but of course the best reason that we can be glad we're all here this morning is it is a blessing to study God's word together and I know you agree with me or you wouldn't be here so turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4 and we are going to take another look at that great guy Nehemiah while you're doing that I have to share with you that I am a creature of habit and if I have a choice I start every morning the same way a little English breakfast tea some great time with the Lord then I go to emails I need to kind of catch up and think it's amazing to me what comes in overnight in your email account so I always do that then the last thing I do before I head out the door is I read the world news. I pull up CNN or Fox News, AOL, whatever, and read through what's going on in our country and around the world before I head out the day. I, I kind of feel like naked if I don't know what's going out in the world, if I head out and get in my car before I know what's going on. You know, and as we take a look at Nehemiah this week in the face of opposition, I want to just share with you a few of the headlines that I found just this last week as I looked at the news in our country and, and news around the world. One of them was an article. It was titled, The Jesus Myths. What do we really know about Jesus? And, of course, it was a news article. It was based on a cover story. You may have seen it in Newsweek. It was based on a cover story in December that Newsweek did that was really totally ridiculed I mean ridiculed the inerrancy of scripture it was supposed to be a scholarly article but if you read it from the perspective of a believer it was just ridicule of the inerrancy of scripture another headline that I saw this week was NBC declares war on Christians and it was a news story that um, had all these examples of not only news programs, NBC commentators, employees, but just their regular programming that had basically, um, I wouldn't say blatantly ridiculed Christ, I would say blasphemed Christ. And I was so happy that I had not seen any of this because it would have sent me through the roof. Another news article was one that said, colleges say Christian group can't have Christian leaders. And this was a, a, just a news article about InterVarsity Fellowship was having difficulty at colleges around the nation because colleges had decided that Christian groups that were campus organizations could not ask their president 
to sign a statement of faith. That they couldn't ask that, that it was against the rules for this Christian organization to have a president that signed a statement of faith. I mean, in my mind, it's like saying the captain of the soccer team doesn't have to play soccer. I mean, I, I didn't get it. And then, of course, there was a lot of stuff from different places in the world. There was one that said, China's Christians see mounting persecution in the country's effort to disband churches. And it was about how they're using... Um, a really subtle means in China now. They act like they're more open in China to Christians and Bibles, but what they're doing is they're finding out who has house churches and then they're taxing their homes and taking their homes away from them or whatever. Um, and then this was the one that I really um, just read a couple of days ago. Saudi religious police arrest Ethiopian Ethiopian workers for practicing Christianity. In Saudi Arabia, they have a religious police. And one of their big goals is to uh, find anyone that's a Christian and arrest them and put them in jail. These were Ethiopian aid workers that had been there aiding Saudi Arabia. They had been jailed for a couple of months simply because they owned Bibles and they had been practicing um, their faith. Now, I wasn't looking for these articles, even though I was kind of working on this. It was just like every day I opened up the news and found more and more and more. It is mainstream news that Christians, not just here in America, but most certainly around the world, face growing opposition and in many places around the world really are under attack for their faith. Now, I know that may be hard for us to identify here this morning in Fort Worth, Texas, because we are kind of the buckle of the Bible belt. But as believers, we may should not become complacent and assume that this doesn't exist in other places in the world, that other believers are not facing significant opposition in their lives today, and we can't assume that it may not impact our lives here in Fort Worth, Texas one day. Last week with Lynn, we took a wonderful look at what it looks like when you are called to lead. And if you'll remember, Lynn said, you know, the truth is... All of us as believers are called to lead in the world because we're called to take our faith out into the world. And Nehemiah is a man whose life is worth learning from. I read a quote this week that said, The real test of any leader is how they face a crisis and react to opposition. And that's what we should all be doing is evaluating our leaders both in the church and in the world on how they face a crisis and react to opposition. And this week, Nehemiah is going to mentor us in how to be leaders that face a crisis and react to opposition well. How to, how to lead when the world around you really hates you when they want to destroy you and discredit you because that was the situation Nehemiah was in. You know, the lessons for all of us in this chapter are valuable, even those of us that are in the buckle of the Bible belt. You know, it may not be today, but there will be a day when some of us in this room face opposition because of our commitment to Christ and our faith. You know, Jesus really did understand that, and this is what he warned his disciples about, the opposition they would face in John 15:18 on your verse sheet. Jesus said to his disciples before he left them, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
As we face the reality this morning that the world around us is really not going to embrace who we are because of our faith and our commitment to Christ, our job as believers is not to be naive, it's not to be fearful, and certainly it's not to be foolish. Our job as believers is to be prepared. So let's look at Nehemiah this morning in the face of opposition and get ready. Read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 with me. When I heard... When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life, those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, says, What they are building, even if a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." You know, if there had been headlines in Nehemiah's day, they probably would have read something like, Sanballat and cohorts declare war on the Jews. Or maybe it would have been the wall myths. Do these people really know how to build a wall? You know, last week in chapter 2 with Lynn, we saw that Sanballat and his cohorts were disturbed and unhappy that Nehemiah had showed up in Jerusalem at all. Look at on your verse sheet, Nehemiah 2.10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And now as we begin chapter 4, we see that their unhappiness has turned into anger and outright hostility as they realize that the work that Nehemiah has showed up to do is actually taking place. And it's going to be beneficial to the nation of Israel. Nehemiah was not simply all talk. He came with a plan, and now he is executing that plan, and it is moving forward. In fact, if you remember, he showed up with a letter from the king and actually a military escort. Um, Because of that, Nehemiah and his plans for Jerusalem and the plans of the people of God pose a direct threat to the power that Sanballat holds as the Persian governor in this area. Sanballat doesn't want anyone to rock his boat. And definitely his boat is being rocked by the Jews' obedience to their God. He was disturbed when he first heard about Nehemiah and now he's livid. But what he does is interesting. He foolishly disregards what Nehemiah has already told him back in chapter 2, verse 20. Look on your verse sheet. Nehemiah said to him back in chapter 2, I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. Sanballat and his friends, in their anger and probably in their pride, um, and the fact that they're probably not used to being um, overruled, dismiss the fact that they're not really just simply opposing Nehemiah as a political rival. They're not simply just opposing these foolish Jews that have decided to take that pile of rubble and rebuild it into a wall. They're opposing the God of heaven. And their opposition to the plans and the purposes of God first takes shape here in these first four verses, five verses 
in the form of ridicule and sarcasm and taunting. You know, Sandballad even gets his sidekick Tobiah to um, get involved in the tough talk here. And I think he sounds a little foolish, actually, when he says, even a fox would break down your wall. That kind of sounds like the little preschool boys in the schoolyard, you know, doesn't it? Psychological warfare, we should understand, is usually the first weapon of those who are threatened by the plans and the purposes of God. That's how they come out first, is with some tough talk and some ridicule. Uh, That's what I was talking about in the news articles. Sam Ballard and his cohorts, they probably had in their day a relatively small audience as they were having all that tough talk. It does say the army of Samaria was there, and that probably means just a few of the army officers of Samaria were there when they were ridiculing the Jews. But, you know, today's world is different, is it? Those that oppose the plans and purposes of God have a much broader, wider stage because of the world we live in. Because of our technology, a war of words that targets God is really easier to conduct in our day. In fact, I heard, I thought this was interesting. Recently, I've heard several of you talk about having to deal with Facebook posts that really do the same thing Sandballot is doing here. From from their, their acquaintances, one gal told me how um, stunned she was by a relative of hers that was not a believer that just continued to bash her faith on Facebook. That if she posted you know, praise the Lord for the sunshine today, they came back with some, you know, ridiculing, taunting uh, thing to use against her. Um, Facebook, uh, those kind of Facebook posts are doing exactly what Sanballat and his cohorts were doing here. They're ridiculing and taunting those that believe differently from them. I think probably a lot of you read uh, in the last couple of weeks about a well-known sports blogger. It was in the news, and this guy is famous, and he's on ESPN and whatever, and I've totally forgotten his name this morning. I didn't write it down. But just a couple of weeks ago, it was all over the news about the sports blog he had written about First Baptist Dallas. And he wrote that First Baptist Church Dallas is a virulently anti-gay, anti-Semitic megachurch simply because he discovered that Tim Tebow was scheduled to speak there. And he went on a huge tirade about this church. And probably he knows very little about the church itself. But it was covered in all the national news media um, about this church. And certainly we live in a country that that's free speech, but... um, Talk against our Lord's church is also psychological warfare against the plans and the purposes of God, just like in Nehemiah's day. You know, but the great thing about Nehemiah is is he gives us a great example here of how to respond to that ridicule and lies and personal attack. The gal that I was talking about, her first Facebook page that she just continued to be taunted on, she was like, what do I do about this? Um... And Nehemiah tells us, instead of writing a scathing response to Sanballat or getting into a screaming match with him, we see what he does here in verses 4 and 5. He simply prays. He goes straight to God, acknowledging the truth that, you know, Lord, we are despised. And he asks God to deal with those who insult him. He takes the fight straight to the only one that can really fight the battle effectively. And that is, of course, the God of heaven himself. And secondly, when he prays, he also takes himself, Nehemiah takes himself into the presence of the one that is going to give him the courage and the wisdom and the strength 
to deal with these insults as he hears them. His prayer in the face of opposition is is pretty simple. It's honest, it's direct, and it's in line with what he knows about God and his love for his people. Actually, what he prays for here is for Sanballat and his cohorts to be taken captive and to be judged for their sins. It's pretty simple. He's not being vindictive. What he's doing is simply basing his prayer on God's promise to the nation of Israel that he would bless those who bless the nation of Israel and curse those who curse them. Look at Genesis 2 and 3 on your verse sheet. This is God. He says to uh, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Nehemiah, as he prays, shows us his great understanding about the fact that St. Ballad isn't really insulting him personally. It may be in his face and it may be directed at his person. But what Sanballat is really doing is insulting God and insulting God's people. And because of that, Nehemiah knows, hey, he's insulting God, so I'm going to call on God to deal with those insults and to deliver Jerusalem from her enemies. The other truth that we see in Nehemiah's prayer here is that Nehemiah understands that vengeance is truly God's work. It's not Nehemiah's work. It's God's work. Look at Deuteronomy 32:35 on your verse sheet. This is God again. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah resists the temptation to make this fight personal, to make it about him. He also resists the temptation to respond apart from God and to make his own plan. He doesn't make it personal, and he doesn't make his own plan. Two great examples for us to remember in the face of opposition today. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's read verses 6 through 14. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. When Sanballat, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard night and day to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. As you can see, the war of words that Sanballat and his cohorts have waged really haven't had any effect on God's plan and certainly not on his people because they're working harder than ever. Verse 6 tells us that they are working with all of their heart. 
But because their verbal attacks have not stopped the Israelites, the enemies have moved from simply being angry to being livid. And they've decided now to do more than just talk. Um, They're actually planning to mount an offensive and to fight and kill God's people because they won't stop doing God's work. When opposition to the plans and purposes of God is not successful, generally it escalates. It doesn't go away. Sometimes we think, if I'll just ignore them, it will go away. And there are times that's true. But history bears out that if um, those words are not successful, what usually happens uh, when it involves God and his plans and his people is that it escalates. Verse 7 actually lays out the extent of the opposition to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Look back at verse 7 with me. It mentions Sanballat. Uh, Sanballat and his Samaritan friends actually border Jerusalem on the north. Tobiah and the Ammonites actually border Jerusalem on the east. The Arabs that are mentioned here border Jerusalem on the south, and Ashdod is a Philistine city that borders Jerusalem on the west. So in other words, they're totally surrounded by their enemies, and all these enemies have joined together, and they are going to plot to oppose God's plan. But I want you to take note of the response of God's people here. They don't rush headlong foolishly into war. They don't race out of Jerusalem thinking, if we attack all these people first, then we'll be ahead of a game. Um, Verse 9 tells us that they prayed. And that shows us that Nehemiah's earlier response that we saw up in verse 4 and 5, where he was being ridiculed and he went to prayer, that was a great example to the people. And they're following his example. And now all of them are praying in the face of opposition here. And that's a great point because prayer in the midst of difficult circumstances is always the right thing to do. But, you know, it doesn't relieve us from taking practical action. The first thing that we saw is that they prayed. The second thing that we saw is they prepared to fight. They found their weapons. You know, prayer guides us so that we know what actions to take. And it encourages encourages us so we have the courage to take that action. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once told his students, pray as if everything depended on God and then preach as if everything depended on you. Oliver Cromwell uh, told his troops the same thing, the British troops. He said to the British troops, trust God and keep your gunpowder dry. Because I think he knew those guns were eventually going to be needed. You know, prayer directs us. It beseeches God to act on our half. It gives us balance that we need in the midst of opposition. But it doesn't excuse us from taking action. We can't simply go into our prayer closet when... um, Opposition is out there and never come out. So we see that the people do pray, but they also prepare to fight. The other thing that we see right here in these verses uh, is that in the midst of this escalating opposition, God's people are stressed and tired. Uh, The physical work is exhausting. Can you imagine what it must have been like to look out over all that rubble and think we are supposed to be building this wall? I've been involved in a construction project with my husband recently. And it's, you know, a a site that's, you know, not 
even as big as this room. And when I was by there the other day, they had six huge tractors and dump trucks and machinery and whatever just to excavate this very small spot. Can you imagine that Israelites who completed this project in 52 days did it without machinery? Um, I, I, I really would. I, I really want to know how they did it. I really want to know how they cleared that rubble and did it brick by brick. But of course, I do know, don't I? They did it with God, who was there with them, walking along beside them. You know, the physical work is exhausting, and along with that, the threat of the violence is real. It is in their face every single day. You know, both of these are going to be real obstacles that all of us are going to face in the midst of opposition. You know, just like the Israelites, sometimes we get tired and sometimes we get stressed, even in the midst of carrying out God's perfect will, in the midst of carrying out God's plans and purposes. You know, it is true that the Israelites were definitely, as they built this wall, right in the center of God's will, and they're still exhausted. And they're still tired. Being in the center of God's will does not exempt us from fatigue, physical fatigue, or emotional stress. But you know what it should do is cause us to stop and rethink our plans just for a minute. Rethink our strategy even as we do God's will. And because Nehemiah is such an amazing and fabulous leader, that's exactly what we see Nehemiah do here in verse 13. He knows he's in the center of God's will, but he takes a look around, um, and he doesn't ignore the fact that his people are under stress from this physical work and the threat of moment-by-moment attack. Instead, what he does is he addresses it with a new plan. A good leader is going to stop and think, do I need a different plan? His new plan puts people together by families at the exposed places on the wall. They have their weapons ready. They have ready to respond with their swords and their spears and their bows. Now, I think, as I thought about this, that this new plan that Nehemiah came up with as he saw how exhausted the people were was probably a really hard call for Nehemiah as a leader. It was a hard call because it meant placing the women and the children at risk if they really were attacked. As leaders in our faith, sometimes God asks us to make the hard call. And a really, truly great leader is going to be someone that's willing to make that hard call. Nehemiah was able to do that because we see in these verses he was completely confident about who God was. He wasn't depending on his own strength as a leader. He was confident in who God was. He was confident that God would stand beside him. Even though this new plan was risky, It was also brilliant. If you think about that, these guys were exhausted. I bet Nehemiah is thinking, whoa, we are two steps away from all these guys saying, we will never accomplish this. We are throwing down our weapons and going home and putting our feet up. But, you know, with their families beside them, with their wives and their children right there, none of these men were likely to cut and run because they were too tired. And none of them were going to cut and run if the enemy came over the wall at them because they were going to protect their families. Um, It was a brilliant plan, even as difficult as it was for him to make. And after Nehemiah makes that plan and looks over it in verse 14, he stands up and he says to all of them, um, he gives them the truth. The truth of the reason why he could make that hard call and the reason why they could carry it out with their families. The truth 
that God is exactly who he says he is. He reminds them that God is with them um, in verse 14. And he says that his God is awesome and great. Remembering their God keeps them focused not only on his great power, but the fact that they're doing his work. How encouraging is that when you say this is hard, but it's what God has for us. He keeps them focused on that. And it keeps them focused on the fact that they can trust him as they fight for their future and their families. You know what it is, is it's reminiscent to me of the speech that Joshua gave the nation of Israel. They camped on the banks of the Jordan River, prepared to go into the promised land for the first time. Uh, Joshua knew that this was God's plan, but he also knew that there was going to be some opposition involved when they crossed that river and had to take all their cities. I think it was probably a story that was familiar to Nehemiah as he made this speech. Look at Joshua 1.9 for me. This is what Joshua said to, it, uh, to the nation of Israel. He said, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I think this was a story that was familiar to Nehemiah. And he remembered it as he stood up and said similar words to the men that were working on the wall. You know, in the face of escalating and violent opposition, Nehemiah gives us some great wisdom here. Nehemiah stays focused on God in spite of all that's going on around him night and day, night and day, as they work to complete this wall. He stays focused on God and God's purpose for him. You know, the very real physical danger that's here does not sidetrack Nehemiah. He doesn't think, we are never going to survive this. The physical fatigue and the stress of the people as they accomplish God's will in rebuilding the wall, that does not sidetrack him. He stays focused on God and he doesn't give in to the temptation which I think all leaders have to really guard themselves again. He does not against. He does not give in to the temptation to second guess himself, to stand there and think, why am I here? Maybe I'm supposed to be building a wall somewhere else, you know. He doesn't second-guess himself. And even more importantly than that, Nehemiah never second-guesses God. He doesn't do what I'm so often likely to do, say, Really, God? This is what you put me here for? I thought I was going to do some great work for God, and here I am with people that are exhausted and stressed out. Nehemiah doesn't second-guess himself, and he resists the temptation to second get not to second guess God he remembers God he commands the people to remember God and he leads them to stand on their faith not in fear in the face of opposition you know his actions here are really a great example of what Paul tells the New Testament believers who are going to face their share of opposition also in 1 Corinthians 16 on your verse sheet he says Paul says to the New Testament believers, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. That was exactly who Nehemiah was, exactly. Okay, let's finish up the chapter. Read with me, beginning in verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. 
The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went to water. The great news is after um, Nehemiah's plan to post everybody along the walls uh, with their families, um, their opposition um, really discovered that the Israelites had a plan. They weren't all just working on the wall, but they had a plan. So there was no attack. The attack actually did not come. And so then everybody was able to go back to where they needed to be working on the wall. They continue working. And in verse 15, Nehemiah gives all the credit to God. He does not talk about his great leadership here. He doesn't say, you know, I really made that hard call and thank goodness it paid off. Look how, um, look how good it turned out because of the, the um, great leader I am. He merely writes, God frustrated the plot because that's what he believes has happened. That's what he knows is true. As that wall grew brick by brick by brick, Nehemiah's faith in God continued to be steady and firm. And as that wall grew brick by brick by brick, it underlined the truth that Nehemiah points out in verse 15 here. And that is that opposition to God's plans and purposes are always going to be frustrated by God himself. They're always going to be met by God. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 33:10. The Lord foils the plans of the nation. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generation. That was a truth that Nehemiah saw as the wall continued to grow. Um, and the nation of Israel saw it also. Now, the rest of these verses, verses 16 through 23, I don't know about you, but it read like the script of an action movie to me. I mean, you could just see this if this was um, some movie that we were watching. The Israelites continued to take the threat of the enemy seriously. The men actually work with one hand, which I can't imagine how they're building the wall, and hold a sword or a weapon of some sort in another. And then the trumpeter stays right with Nehemiah, um, because the men, if you remember the diagram that Lynn gave out last week, this is a pretty big wall that they are all spread out on. Uh, so even though Nehemiah stands on his faith and his belief that God is right there with him, he doesn't give up being realistic about the threat around them. He doesn't say, okay, God has protected us so we can just act like it doesn't exist. He never sells the enemy short here, which is also the measure of a great leader. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8 on your sheet. Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, he wasn't really 
uh, he was looking for Sanballat and his enemy. But we can follow Nehemiah's example and never sell the enemy short in uh, when we're facing opposition. Uh, he continues to have a plan in place, and his plan is that every man is going to stay in Jerusalem at night so they can be guards by night and workers by day. He wasn't, it was going to be too dangerous to turn everybody loose to go back to their homes outside the wall of Jerusalem. And whenever they hear that trumpet blast, they are going to rally and fight. And even though he's keeping them organized and alert and ready to fight, he also lets them know one more time. It's just over and over again. He has a great plan, but he reminds them of who their God is. In verse 20, he reminds them one more time, hey, we have swords and spears and bows, but we also have the ultimate strategic weapon, and that is God himself. God is going to fight for us. Just as Nehemiah never becomes complacent about the enemy, he never gives up being vigilant about this enemy, he also never forgets who the true warrior here is for Israel. He never forgets who God is, and he continues to say that to the people. I don't know how many times I have, um, you know, had a, have stood on my faith, but maybe I didn't verbalize it to other people. Maybe I didn't say, you know, look what's happening here. This is God that has brought this about. The example we see in Nehemiah is he continues to give it to the people over and over and over again. He doesn't sell the enemy short, and he never sells his God short. The final thing we see here in this chapter is that Nehemiah himself, and this I think is one of my favorite things about Nehemiah, he is fully committed to this plan himself. He is invested in it 100%. Verse 23 says, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. He sets a powerful example for the people as a leader by working and fighting alongside them every single minute. He expects the same thing of his household, of his brothers of his personal guard that he expects of the nation of Israel. He is not expecting Israel to stand in the face of opposition while he takes a hike and sits in the back room somewhere safely. Um, he is an example of a true leader in the face of opposition. You know, I told you when we started that a true, the measure of a true leader is how he responds in the face of opposition. And I think you all agree with these this morning that he gets an A+. It seems like every time I've turned on my television recently, there's been some sort of an awards program on the Emmys, the Oscars, the Grammys, the blah, blahs, whatever's on. If there was an award ceremony for great leaders in the history of the world, I'd give it to Nehemiah. I'd give it to Nehemiah. Um, and next week, we're going to see where he faces a different kind of opposition and how he deals with that. He gives us some pra great practical lessons for being the same kind of leader in our faith um, that he is, one who stands firm in the face of opposition in a fallen world. So what do we do in the face of opposition? And from the headlines I read you earlier, it's out there. It's out there. In the face of opposition to our faith, we have to remember Nehemiah's spiritual response. That's not always the first thing I want to go to when someone ridicules my God and my Savior. Um, 
But Nehemiah teaches us the right response is to pray, not to argue with our opponents, to trust God and not ourselves, to be powerful enough to deal with all opposition, not just a few little oppositions, but all opposition, no matter what it looks like. And we must remember, just like he did, to not get sidetracked by pride and anger and finger-pointing that occasionally goes on when believers face opposition, when opposition gets right in our face. Nehemiah went straight to prayer, and then at every turn in the battle, he stood firm on his faith in God. So as God's people, we need to remember Nehemiah's spiritual response. Our second lesson from Nehemiah is that in the midst of opposition, we need to stay focused on God but we also need to keep working to advance God's plans and purposes. You know, the opposition truly does want us to give up. They truly do want to write all those things or say all those things and have us say, oh, you're right. I don't know how I ever believed that anyway. It is ridiculous and foolish. That's not what we're supposed to do. Nehemiah did not give up, and he did not discredit himself by anything he did. He not only saw the project to completion by working and fighting night and day, while he did that, he stayed focused on God, not on the enemy, what the enemy was doing and saying. Even as the opposition worsened every day, it seemed like it got worse for Nehemiah, he stayed focused and he kept working. You know, that really is a pretty, as I was working through this, that really is a pretty straightforward plan for dealing with opposition to our faith. Stay focused on God and keep working in God's kingdom. And finally, just as Nehemiah was an example to the people of Israel in the face of opposition, all of us in this room need to be an example to the world around us as we face opposition. An example of a Christ follower who understands why the world opposes us and that the world will oppose us. A Christ follower that keeps our eyes on God but still keeps moving God's kingdom forward. In the face of opposition, just like Nehemiah, we must set an example with our actions that truly honor God and that encourages other believers to do the same so that the world, the God-watchers out there, see the truth. Pray with me. Father, you are a great and a good God. You're an awesome God, as Nehemiah said. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be students of your word, to hold it in our hand and to read it and study it and learn from it together. Father, I pray that... um, just the wisdom that we find in your word would change who we are, that we would leave here uh, knowing better how to face opposition in the world and that we would follow Nehemiah's example of staying focused on you and yet advancing your plans and purposes and being in the center of your will. Um, I ask that you keep these ladies safe as they leave here for all the gals that are not with us this week, Lord God, because they are with their families or on a trip. Would you protect them and guard them and bring them back safely? I pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.